Isaiah 10, our, our verse that uh, Pastor Marty's preaching from this morning is Isaiah um, 10, verse 5 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless, <clears throat> against a godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones, and my hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened, a mouth, opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of, of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For there your people Israel be as, for though your people Israel be as the, as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you, as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end, and my anger will be directed to their destruction, and the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aoth, 
He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at Giba. At Giba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Gollum. Give attention, O Lasha. O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion and the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great, the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Sean is a good friend, and indeed, he shows himself to be a good friend when he happily accepted the fact that, and when I asked him to read this passage. So thank you, Sean. It's quite a passage, isn't it? Well, to get us in the right frame of mind to entertain a passage like this, let me ask you a question as we start here this morning. What do you make of China? Now, if I had to talk with many of you this morning afterward, I'm sure I'd get several people to opine on what they would do about China, from raising tariffs to a rapprochement to any other kind of approach to China. Some people may say just, I have no clue, but I don't think what anyone would say is, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's because one name springs to mind so much of what is going on in our world today. From supply chains, to viruses, to human rights, to processing chips, to threats of war, China is always in the news. Well, this helps us understand what's going on here in chapter 10. But instead of China, it's Assyria. If you were passing through Jerusalem as a tourist and decide to pick up the Jerusalem Post on August 21st, 730 BC, you would have been quite alarmed. The news was not good. Reports from the correspondence way up north tell just how mighty the Assyrian Empire has become and their military buildup looks impressive and they're starting to head southward. Further, as you walk back from the coffee shop, Java, Jerusalem, you happen to hear the street, street prophet named Isaiah and he was telling the Jews that something catastrophic is about to happen to them. And it's all because of Assyria. And to help us orient ourselves even more in this passage this morning, I think it's finally time in this series to turn to one of my favorite interests in life, maps. Anywhere I have control over the walls, there are maps. But I'm putting this map up here this morning, not because I find maps endlessly fascinating, but because I actually think it really helps us get a grasp of this passage and of the Assyria problem a bit better. If you orient yourselves towards the map there behind me, just a few notes. This is a map of the life and times of Isaiah 10. And to give you a brief overview of what's going on, the yellow is the Assyrian empire with the centerpiece of the Assyrian empire being up north there at the top center, 
the capital city in Nineveh. You may have heard of that town. And then to the bottom left there at the bottom, you'll see little green and red orange dots there. And those are the small kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And the first thing this map does is to help us understand terminology in Isaiah. See, at this point in history, the 12 tribes of Israel are divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom broke away from the southern kingdom because it wanted to worship God in its own way. In our terms, the northern kingdom went apostate or rogue or it went liberal. And that northern kingdom through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures is often called Israel. Or sometimes it's called Samaria because its capital city is Samaria. And that's where we in the New Testament get the term the Samaritans. Well, then you have the southern kingdom where Isaiah was preaching. And it was called Judah from where you get the terms the Jews. And its capital city was Jerusalem or Zion. And they held on to the faithful traditional rendering of how to worship God and live his way. And so they were called at that point, God's chosen ones. But both at this point were really struggling to hang on. And this is really helpful as you read through the prophetic literature of the Old Testament to understand who is being referred to, Israel up north or Judah down south. The second thing this map helps us with is to see why Assyria is always in the news, both in the Samaria and Jerusalem newspapers. It's huge. It's a massive empire. It surrounds both little kingdoms on all sides. And it's an aggressive one as well. One of the historical resources I read says that it grew huge because of its many successive energetic warrior kings who loved expansion. And then the third thing this map really helps us with is to see why Israel and Judah were the center of attention for the Assyrian king at the time. You can almost hear the map maker, map, map maker at the palace in Nineveh telling the king, hey king, can you just take care of Israel and Judah so we can have a clean sweep? I mean, I'm tired of my wonderful yellow map always have these speckled dots of green and red. In other words, the king of Assyria had his eye on those two little kingdoms down south. So back to Jerusalem, where the news is spreading that the Assyrian forces were heading south and naturally people started to fear. This is a catastrophe. We will get crushed. Look at them and look at us. They're powerful, we're just small. And there you go. That's the Jerusalem perspective of Assyria in 730 BC. So we go from looking at a map, but let's get our nose back into the text. If you don't have the Bible still open, we will have our nose in this text all morning long. So have Isaiah 10 back open. And when we look from the map to the text now, we go from Jerusalem's perspective of Assyria to God's perspective of Assyria. And when we glance back through chapter 10, we see a very clear perspective arise. That God is using Assyria to punish wicked Israel. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, have been told that God will not stand for their wickedness. He will not be passive. He will not allow them to keep calling themselves God's people and yet live like all the other nations, like the Assyrians. So they will get punished. And as chapter 10, verse 4 says, God's anger will, has not turned away. 
And that word anger links us into chapter 10, verse 5. How will God express his anger towards Jerusalem and Judah and Israel? Well, Isaiah has already hinted at it in our time in Isaiah, but now he makes it very clear that God's anger is expressed through Assyria. Verse 5, Assyria is the rod of God's anger. Assyria is how God will punish wicked Israel up north and stubborn Judah down south. And our passage here is more of a, prophet, or a poetic passage. And so it's not a linear story. And so we're going to weave together all the different references to this point here throughout the whole chapter. And you see this come very clearly in verses 5 through 11. You see in verse 5 there, as we already mentioned, Assyria is like a rod and staff ready to strike down Israel. Verse 6 is this terrible irony that Isaiah is giving to the Jews when he says Assyria is being sent by God to go after that godless nation. When Judah and Jerusalem are called a godless nation in context of the idolaters, the Assyrians, you know they're bad. That stings. And then on down in verse 8, that this conquest by the Assyrians as they come south is going to be just like their other conquests, that the Assyrians captured so many kingdoms that those kings are now commanders in the mighty Assyrian army. And so it will be the same with Jerusalem, verse 11. And so you have there at verses 9 through 11 that the king of Assyria is laying out his victory route southward as he marches down through Carchemish, Hamath, down to Samaria, and finally into Jerusalem, verse 11. Now this was predicted back in chapter 8, that Jerusalem will be destroyed. It is inevitable. And so now go back to the end of the chapter, verses 28 and 32. Again, these lists of cities are meant to bring about the fear, the terrifying fear of the mighty Assyrian army succeeding town after town quite easily as he heads southward through Samaria, just down to Nob outside of Jerusalem. Town after town, God's judgment is coming. There'll be no escape. So what does God think of Assyria? Assyria is the powerful agent of God's judgment upon Judah and Israel. And what we're supposed to feel from this text is actually a similar feel from when you get to the end of the return of the Jedi in the Star Wars saga. Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, and the Emperor up in his throne room looking out this big window at the planet Endor. Luke is hoping that his friends will be able to get through and take down the controls so that they can blow up the Death Star. But the Emperor in his evil voice, slowly and deliberately leads young Skywalker to realize there is absolutely nothing to be done. As they look out this large window at the planet, the emperor says to Skywalker, from here, you will witness the final destruction of the Alliance and the end of your insignificant rebellion. Well, Isaiah is saying something very similar to the Jews. From here in Jerusalem, you will witness the destruction of the insignificant little kingdoms at the hands of the Assyrians. It's unavoidable. It's your destiny because of your rebellion. So what do we make of Assyria now? 
Clearly, Assyria is God's agent to judge Israel and Judah. But if you let that sink in for a moment and think about that, two big questions would spring forth. And these are the questions the Jews had when they were listening to Isaiah. First of all, they had to be thinking, wait a second, Isaiah, God. I mean, I know we've done some wrong things, but the Assyrians are doing your work and your will now. They're your agents. They're your people. Those ruthless idolaters. I don't think that's quite fair. And then the second question has to be, well, if this is unavoidable, it's inevitable, what hope do we have? Well, look at verse 12. And we see verse 12 in a nutshell answers all these questions, both of these questions when Isaiah says this, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eye. Don't miss the magnitude of what is being said in this one short verse. First of all, Isaiah is saying with kind of promissory language here, when he says, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, he is saying that there is a limit to God's destruction. It won't be total. Jerusalem could be saved because he calls it his Zion, Mount Zion. But also notice what is said here in verse 12, that God will punish the pride and arrogance of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians here are personified in, by talking about their king. See, the Assyrians aren't some new apple in God's eyes just because he uses them to accomplish his plans. No, their intent for the destruction of Jerusalem is far different than God's intent for the same destruction. Look back there at verse seven. Their intent is to destroy Israel. Or you go down to verses 13 and 14 where we see that the king of Assyria is actually mocked by Isaiah here, he's personified. He thinks he's so mighty, so strong, so invincible. Notice all the eyes and mys and eyes and mys in those two short verses. He thinks he's taken out Israel and Judah because he's so powerful and it's by his power he's doing it. It'll be as easy as taking eggs from the chicken coop, verse 14. But the Lord says he won't get away with it. Assyria's proud, arrogant, and destructive ways won't last and won't go unpunished. You see there, there in verse 15, shall the ax boast over the person swinging it? It can't move without someone giving it some muscle or will the saw get more attention than the lumberjack using it? No, says the Lord, verse 16, your arrogant ways we punish, then the Lord will take down the mighty Assyrian warriors with a wasting sickness. And moving down there in verses 17 through 19, this great image that the light of Israel will burn hot and take down Assyria to be like just a few trees in a once dense forest, cut down so much that a child could count the remnants. And then moving on into the end of the chapter, verses 32 through 34, we see that imagery of the southward progression of the Assyrian army. But notice there in verse 32, they will be halted at Nob just outside Jerusalem. In God's kindness, 
verse 34, he will actually turn against the Assyrians then and their trees will be cut down like the big trees of Lebanon. You can read about the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 36 and 37 and see how it plays out. But for now, Isaiah wants Jerusalem, those there, to know that the Assyrians won't ultimately prevail. And even more so, God will hold them accountable for their detestable pride and their insatiable appetite for war and destruction. Alec Machir, an Old Testament theologian, says it so well this way. The Assyrians were sovereign until they met the sovereign at Jerusalem. So that answers our first question we had. Are the Assyrians God's people since they seem to be doing God's will? No, they will be judged because of what they're doing. But the other question still remains is, where is their hope? Is there any hope? Well, for that, let's look at the centerpiece of this chapter, verses 20 through 27. This is the pivot piece for the whole chapter, how it works. Everything before this section and everything after this section is all about the demise and fall of Assyria. And this section talks about the implications of knowing such a thing. You see in there in verse 20, that word remnant comes out again. And this links us back to verse 19. See, what God is saying is that actually... I'm going to judge both Assyria and Israel. So much so that there will only be left a remnant in both. But the remnant in the case of the Assyrians, verse 19, will be so insignificant and few that a child can count. But Israel's remnant, verse 20, will be different. You see in there in verse 21 that God's remnant are called the survivors of the house of Jacob. Now this name, the house of Jacob, was used to refer to actually all 12 tribes of Israel. So what God is saying is I'm still faithful to my promise way back to Abraham, way back to Isaac, way back to Jacob. God's grace extends very far and not only is there hope, there's great hope. And so... Verse 24, God says, Oh, my people, do not be afraid. God calls his people, his people, to live by faith. And God's true people, no matter how bad it gets out in front of them, will not look to Assyria to save them when they come. God's remnant will return with a wholehearted commitment to the Lord their God. Or as verse 20 says, they will lean on the Lord God of Israel. And then verses 24 through 27, Isaiah gives them a little history lesson to remind them that God, in fact, can do it. He has some amazing stories from the past, and Isaiah brings up just two. The one story is the story of Gideon with only 300 soldiers taking on the Midianites with thousands of soldiers, and yet God still prevails with that tiny little army. Or their story from being released and taken out of Egypt. The Israelites had no army, and yet when they passed through the Red Sea and looked back, the mighty Egyptian army was pummeled by the waves. The evidence is clearly there, Isaiah says. God has taken on situations far worse than what you see in front of you with the Assyrians, and he'll do it again. So who are you going to trust? One person said it this way, essentially the choice that Isaiah and his compatriots faced 
was whether to respond to the circumstances that threatened them with calm reliance upon God or a frenzy of self-help. Isaiah 10 seems to be all about Assyria. And one short sentence could summarize it. And it's there in verses 20 through 24. Neither rely on nor fear Assyria. And if we were to do an outline of this passage, you would see that Assyria is all around in verses 5 through 19 and verses 28 through the end. But the centerpiece, just like the centerpiece of our map with Assyria being all around, the centerpiece is Zion, is God and his promise. so amazing how often this is how the Bible works. We think this is all about Assyria, but really this passage is all about God and his work and his might and his mercy. So how are we to respond to a text like this? Well, I think it actually comes in two short phrases that we've already mentioned a few times. Verse 20, we respond by do not lean on Assyria, but instead lean on the Lord. And verse 24, do not fear Assyria, but instead Fear the Lord. Now, specifically how the Jews were to work this out in practice, well, that's not given to us in this text. But I want you to notice something at the end of verse, back up at verse 20. The faithful remnant will be marked as people who lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And that means that when their whole world comes crashing down because of the Assyrians, they won't despair and they won't give up on God. To trust him, to lean on him, meant that they would trust no matter what was happening, they would believe the truth that God has given them and not the truth they think they see. The truth that what God says what will happen and the truth about how God plans to work out in this world, rather what they can come up with themselves. So, the predicted catastrophe with the Assyrian Empire isn't just something where God has, is absent and is vacated, or we wouldn't even use the language as God is allowing this to happen. No, this is the definite plan of God. Look back at verse 6 with me. You see those statements. I, God says, I send them. I command the Assyrian army, says the Lord. What was God doing in Isaiah 10 through the Assyrians? He was judging and disciplining his rebellious children. But make no mistake, God isn't the author of evil. Because what Assyria, what did Assyria think it was doing in Isaiah 10? They weren't thinking, hey, we're gonna do God's will now. No, look at verse seven. They were thinking we're going to destroy Israel and Judah. Verse 13, we're going to crush their kings and plunder their treasures. In other words, God can and actually often does order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men for his own purposes. Assyria was no puppet. Assyria did exactly what he wanted to do, and yet God was still in control, ordaining all of it. One person says it this way, there is great comfort in the teaching of scripture about the way God achieves his purposes through human instruments, even when they do not acknowledge him and have their own ungodly agendas. 
While God may use evil people to accomplish his purpose, this does not in any way diminish their accountability before him. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most important truths about God for you to lean in on that you could ever commit your mind to thinking about. Theologians call this idea compatibilism because it's saying that God's will and human will aren't at odds, but actually are compatible. One theologian says it this way, it means that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, but his sovereignty never functions in a way that minimizes human responsibility. Or to say it a different way, human beings are morally responsible creatures, so they can choose and rebel and obey and believe and make decisions and defy, and they are accountable and held responsible for each one of those decisions. But nowhere does this function outside of God's sovereignty and ordained will. Compatibilism means that one event can have two different causes and both are true. And Isaiah 10 is an example of this and one of the most important texts to showcase how God's sovereignty and human will work in the world in front of you. So concurrently, a person can do an evil thing because he or she chooses and wants to do that. And at the same time, God is ordaining that work for his good purposes. An example of this is one we know from our childhood Sunday school days, maybe if you went. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph's brothers hated him because they were envious of him and they wanted rid of him out of the family. And so what did they do? They figured out a way basically to sell him off into slavery, thinking that he would die on way. Joseph didn't die. He actually ended up in the mighty kingdom of Egypt and arose to be their prime minister one day. And the first time he has an encounter again with his brothers who know that Joseph knows what they did because he's still alive. They were cowering in the corner, worried what Joseph would say and do to them, worried that this would be the end of them because of the evil intents of their hearts. And then Joseph at that moment says one of the most strikingly amazing things in all of scripture. He looks at them, not in anger and says, brothers, why do you fear? Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the many people to be kept alive as they are today. Joseph, in his wisdom, stored up lots of grain and fed thousands and thousands of people in Egypt and on up into Canaan. Why was Joseph sold into slavery? His brothers acted with evil intentions. Why was Joseph sold into slavery? God ordained it to feed thousands of people and to keep his promise to Abraham. Now, time doesn't allow us to say much more on this point, but I want to say a few things to keep you thinking on this. And I hope you will think about this because it's really important how you understand what's happening to you and in the whole world. The first thing I want to say is that because of my belief in compatibilism, that the Bible teaches this from cover to cover, I'm not the biggest fan of the phrase, it's a God thing. (laughs) Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying thank you to God when good things happen. But we don't want to think about and teach people by the way we talk in something called dualism. When good things work out for us, it's a God thing. When things don't go so well, well, God is absent. Now, this is really, really hard to wrestle with 
but can I say it very clearly without being trite? It was a God thing when most of Isaiah's peers were dying at the hand of the awful Assyrians. God is always present, always working, always in control. And what Isaiah 10 teaches us is to be careful of how we look upon the world and how we speak about our circumstances because we believe that God is indeed working through all things for good. And when it's his good, it's our good. And thus it puts the question of Isaiah 10 back on us. Will we lean on this God or somewhere else? The second thing we learn from compatibilism in Isaiah 10 is that we neither have to deny evil nor fear that it will ultimately triumph. We neither have to deny it or fear that it will ultimately triumph. And this is really the flip side of my last point. The Jews dying at the hands of the Assyrians was indeed an evil and terrible thing and God will judge them fiercely for it. So when terrible things happen, we don't have to pretend that they aren't terrible. We lament, we cry, we know that evil happens in a fallen world, but we also know that it won't win. It can't win and it can't go unaccounted for. And this leads us to our last point. We know evil can't win because of the cross of Jesus Christ. See, understanding Isaiah 10 and compatibilism is essential to grasp because it explains the very heart of the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is where Isaiah 10 drives us. If you don't lean into and trust the God who knows and works this way, you don't have the full saving work of Jesus Christ. Listen to the way Peter talks about compatibilism in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did Jesus die? Because God planned it, ordained it from the very beginning. Why did Jesus die? Evil, lawless men wanted to kill the only ever innocent person. As one person puts it, if you lose either one of those, you lose the gospel itself. If what happened to Jesus really wasn't evil, then he didn't die for sins and we are still in our sins. And if what happened to Jesus wasn't the definite plan of God, then God isn't in control and we have no hope for the future because Jesus was an unfortunate casualty in a world running amok out of God's control. The single worst act in the history of the world, the worst evil to ever happen is also the greatest day in the history of the world and one that we celebrate regularly because it means salvation for you and me and for anybody who put their faith in Jesus Christ. When we know the outcome of that horrendous evil, it helps us stand firm in our faith in the Lord when we don't know the outcome of what's in front of us now, whether hardships or struggles or horrible things going on in your life. We can face this world because of Isaiah 10. Friends, I'm asking you 
to lean in into the truth of the God who knows and the God who is faithful. Before we pray here, can I just say that I know this is a very sensitive subject and it's a deep and tough subject. And if you struggle with what's going on in your own life, pastors won't be able to tell you what's gonna happen. But we have people to here to pray with you and to help you walk through the storms in your life. But let me commend to you to consider deeply Isaiah 10 and lean in on the God who cares. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your kindness and goodness. Lord, we thank you that you are the God in control. We thank you, Lord, that you ordain all things. And Lord, we confess that it is very hard at times to understand. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we doubt you're in control. We confess, Lord, that many times we don't act and live like you're in control. We confess, Lord, that we sometimes don't like that you're in control and like the ways that you have ordained. We also, Lord, look to the world and we see evil that is wrong and terrible. Lord, we look to the world and we see life under the sun that is full of billions of people shaking their fists at you. And because of that, Lord, we damage this world around us and each other. We're sorry for our part in that, Lord, but we're also sorry collectively that this world thinks it is better without you. Lord, thank you for not abandoning this world. Thank you for your promises to make everything right. We thank you for the guaranteed down payment that you've shown us in the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection so that we can trust you no matter what you put in our way. Lord, give us wisdom and faithfulness as we consider our own lives and the lives of those loved ones around us. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen.